Tearing Down Walls, a Sunshine Life podcast with your host, Sylvia Cunningham. Welcome to Tearing Down Walls, Sunshine Live's monthly transatlantic show. I'm Sylvia Cunningham. In this episode, we're updating you on two topics we've covered in depth before, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and abortion rights on both sides of the Atlantic. We'll be looking at the end of Roe v. Wade in the U.S. and how abortion providers are coping with the consequences. And in contrast to that in Germany, we'll be talking about a recent win for reproductive rights activists. Also, Olena Lennon is back on the show. She is an adjunct professor at the University of New Haven, home, of course, to our partner station, WNHU. She recently visited her home country, Ukraine, and will share her impressions from the trip. But first, we'll kick off our show as we always do by talking with a DJ. Today, we welcome Berlin-based DJ Paula Koski. Hi, Paula. Thanks for joining me. Hey, thank you for having me. It's very nice to be your guest. So you are currently in your home country in Finland, but usually we can find you in Berlin as part of the club scene here. First of all, how did you get into DJing? Uh, I moved to Sweden back in 2015 to study fashion. And then I was already very interested of electronic music. And I always had this feeling that I should be in the other side of the dance floor, like AKA in the DJ booth. But then uh, in Sweden, I finally had uh, opportunity after I was almost completed with my studies, I found a studio and I started to play. And I knew people in Gothenburg and then I started to have gigs. So that's how it started. How would you describe your style today? I've seen a couple of terms um, like that you specialize in the space between mental and fast paced, groovy techno. I've also seen your genre described as dark minimalism. How would you describe it? Well, yeah, there is for sure like the darkness in it. At the moment, it's like a mix of this more mental sound, but it's also more dynamic and driving and fast paced. I think my sound has changed lately or it's going towards yeah more and more faster and like driving but I think there will always be like in this uh, textured and atmospheric element in it. So I haven't had the chance to see you in person but I've seen some videos of you playing. What is the vibe where you think okay yeah this has been a successful party this was a good night? Maybe the connection I feel with the crowd, because for me, it's it's like a conversation between the crowd and me, and it's an exchange. And I can feel, even though sometimes like the booth is very dark and or like I don't see actually what happens on the floor, but I just feel the energy. And that's when I leave a gig where I feel the energy has been very intense. This is when I feel that I did a good, nice gig and... I felt like that the crowd was also enjoying. So yeah, that's it's just the exchange of energies. You've had gigs around Europe and the UK this summer. And obviously, it's been a huge theme these past couple of years about nightlife suffering during the pandemic. When you played recently in Berlin, do you have a feeling it's gotten back to normal? Or what do you think? Well, I think the process of attending a club night, that's kind of pretty much normal now I would say we don't have any restrictions and uh, all of this maybe it's been like a little reboot for the industry uh, the pandemic and maybe also in Berlin I maybe see a bit different style of booking and especially after the war uh, Russia started the war in Ukraine uh, 
I felt that and during this time we started to finally go back to the clubs and I felt maybe the vibe was a bit different because there's so much sadness and worry around all of these topics. Um, but yeah, maybe, I don't know if it's exactly the same. Maybe I have gotten also a bit older during the pandemic and I think it's not exactly the same, but I, I still very much enjoy it and it's uh, nice moments. So July is Pride Month in Germany and there have been events throughout the month. How have you been celebrating and what's been important to you this year? Uh, well, I'm traveling quite a lot. So I haven't been in Berlin too much to attend like CSD weekend. Um, it looked really nice with all the parade. Uh, but for me, I would rather think pride instead of celebration. It's still a protest. And I feel maybe uh, this purpose, I don't say it's being forgotten, but I would like to highlight that for me, it's a way of protesting. But yeah, maybe I'm a queer person and I celebrate queerness in my everyday life. Maybe a one way to celebrate it or a nice uh, occasion was two, two weeks ago, I played with my uh, girlfriend. Uh, we played back-to-back -back set in France at this very nice festival. And I think it was a nice celebration of queer energy, I would say. Paul Lokoski is a Berlin-based DJ. Thank you for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. Tearing Down Walls, our transatlantic show on Sunshine Life. We're shifting now to our first major topic on today's show, one that we covered in depth in May's episode, abortion rights. It's been just two months since that episode, and already so much has changed. In the U.S., the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, which had protected a person's right to an abortion. Total bans have already come into effect in several states, with more expected soon. In Germany, things have taken a step in the other direction— Lawmakers scrapped paragraph 219A, which had previously prevented doctors from, quote, advertising or, in other words, sharing detailed information on their websites about abortion care. But abortion itself still technically remains a criminal offense under Germany's criminal code. Here with me to talk about all of this is Dr. Alicia Bayer. She is the co-founder of Doctors for Choice Germany and an obstetrician in Berlin. Welcome. Thank you. And joining us from Pennsylvania is Dr. Aisha Olatunde. She is an OBGYN and a fellow with Physicians for Reproductive Health. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, great to be here. Dr. Bayer, let's start with you. As a leading voice for Doctors for Choice Germany, you had been advocating for paragraph 219A to be scrapped for a long time. How did it feel and what's changed for you now that it has been? For me, mainly... Um has changed that I now can talk in public about abortion. And um, within Doctors for Choice, I often do that. I try to inform about abortion, about the problems we have uh, in this context in Germany. And I always was fearing that I might get a criminal complaint for that, for talking about the methods, for example. And actually, this happened once that I got a criminal complaint. Luckily, in the end, this didn't lead to a process or a fine, but for several months, I didn't know um, how this will end up. So this was really frightening for me. And now I can talk openly about all this and I don't have to fear that anymore. 
So a little bit of uncertainty is now lifted on your end, but Dr. Olatunde, I can imagine things are really up in the air for you. How has your day-to-day job changed since Roe v. Wade was overturned? Yeah, I think there's now obviously an air of grief around providing abortion care and sadness and uncertainty with every patient encounter. I think on a day-to-day basis, generally my work is the same. You know, thankfully abortion is still legal in the state of Pennsylvania. And so I'm still able to provide abortions with the current restrictions that are already in place. I do think I'm busier. I can't tell if that's like an anecdotal thing that I'm feeling or if if truly we are busier, because I think the patients also feel a sense of panic. And so I think just like as a result of everything that's happened over the last month, I think just everything kind of hits much more on the surface and you feel a lot more anxiety and uncertainty about the work that you're doing on a day-to-day basis. And what kinds of questions are you now getting from your patients? In the days right after Roe v. Wade was overturned, you know, I had to tell my staff to ensure that patients still knew that abortion was legal in the state because patients would show up and they would say, like, I didn't know if I was going to be able to have my abortion today. And so I think having to reframe that for patients, but also validate their concerns because things are very fluid across the country. They're very fluid in the state of Pennsylvania. And, you know, trying to ensure that we can take care of them today, but understand that things are are constantly changing and we're still constantly having to come up with contingency plans for the coming months if things are to change. Dr. Beyer, what was your reaction to the Supreme Court decision and everything that's followed watching it from abroad? Well, for me, it was devastating, especially it was the same day when in in Germany, the paragraph 219a was abolished. Uh, and we were happy. And then some hours later, we we heard about the news in the US. And yeah, I was really, really sad. And especially because the US for us has been in many parts a role model in abortion. For example, when we look at things like research, abortion research, or statements of the ACOG, which is the Association of gynecologists and obstetricians in the US, which are so much more progressive um, compared to our association of gynecology. You know, it's so interesting to hear you say that the United States has been like a role model, because like when I think about it, I think, you know, yes, Roe v. Wade was paramount in protecting the right to an abortion, right? But ultimately, Roe v. Wade was never the ceiling. It was only the floor. It's interesting that the perception is that we are a role model, because in my eyes, I think we still have so much further to go. And that was before Roe v. Wade was overturned. And now we're just, you know, moving things backwards. Dr. Beyer, maybe you can explain the next step that reproductive rights advocates in Germany are calling for, which is getting Section 218, um, which criminalizes abortion, um, taken out of Germany's criminal law entirely. 
Um, and I, I think it's often surprising to people outside of the country that abortion is still technically illegal here because in so many regards, Germany is considered a very liberal country. Dr. Beyer, with your previous experience as an abortion provider, can you explain why you think this is an important next step? Yeah, in Germany, we have actually one of the most restrictive abortion laws within Europe still, because we have this 218, which criminalizes abortion, and um, you have to undergo a mandatory counseling and a mandatory waiting period of three days before you can have an abortion. And even then, it's still unlawful. So the German law makes very clear that uh, the German state disapproves you if you have an abortion and that feeling of being disapproved or being a criminal hits you in a situation in which you are in need of a medical treatment and very vulnerable and it's very stigmatizing and actually this stigma um, harms the health of the patients. We know this from studies that the, the feeling of being stigmatized in the process of getting an abortion increases the risk of mental health problems. And also the other thing is that the mandatory counseling and the waiting period are barriers to a safe and quick access to abortion as they delay the procedure and they cost valuable time and require you to organize additional steps and also to pay for them. So, And also in Germany, medication abortion is only allowed till the ninth week of a pregnancy. I don't know how this is in the US. So um, these access barriers can also cause that you cannot choose the method anymore that you wanted to have. Dr. Olatunde, you have trained and worked in both Seattle in Washington and in Philadelphia in Pennsylvania. And so you've seen firsthand the very drastic differences um, in the access to abortion care across the country. And of course, you know exactly what these mandatory waiting times are like as well. Can you expand on these factors and how they're harmful and also what communities they impact especially? So a lot of the things that Dr. Beyer had mentioned are things that we also have to navigate here in the state of Pennsylvania with mandatory scripts that I have to say to patients, um, mandatory waiting periods, um, the fact that Medicaid doesn't cover abortion. And so patients are having to seek out the funds to get their abortions paid for which is very harmful. And like you said, Dr. Byer delays people from getting the care that they need. And in the state of Washington, those don't exist really. Like patients are able to show up to a clinic and get the care that they need, get it covered by their state Medicaid, I believe in the state of Washington, without any questions, things that have to be dictated to them or said to them that are baseless and full of lies with like no basis in any sort of medical healthcare, really. Can you give an example of one of those things you have to say? So there are some places in the country that say things about risks of breast cancer, you know, in getting an abortion. And for my script in particular, I have to say something along the lines of that the father of the baby is required to pay child support if you decide to continue the pregnancy, which is like pretty outrageous as if people don't know what 
is their options and what's right for them, that we are being forced to say these things. And it really like strips people of their dignity. And it's just like overall, just really insulting. And I think that just like really speaks to the fact that like all of these abortion bans and abortion restrictions aren't about healthcare. This is about control over a certain population of people. And those people are particularly black and brown bodies, you know, the systems that exist in the United States are built on oppression and are purposely structured to benefit cisgender, heterosexual, white, rich people. And as a result, white supremacy manifests in all of these systems, including reproductive health care and abortion health care. And so with all of the income and health disparities that exist are a result of these like racist policies that have long plagued our country. And so as a result, these abortion bans and abortion restrictions are going to impact these communities the most. It's interesting because, like we've mentioned, you're coming from Pennsylvania, which is a state where abortion is still legal. So on paper or when you're looking at a chart that compares abortion rights across the country or from state to state, you would think this is one of the more ideal situations comparatively. But when you start to lay out all the difficulties it still entails, it seems like we're learning there really is no ideal I mean, the ideal is full liberation of abortion and abortion without caveats. Abortion is part of essential reproductive health care, and there's just no question about that. And it shouldn't be stigmatized or regulated in this way. There's nothing in our healthcare system that is as regulated as abortion. And also in, in Germany, it causes the problem that less and less uh, doctors want to provide abortions, um, partly because of this big stigma and the criminalization. So we have regions in Germany where there are no abortion providers anymore. And that also leads to um, longer waiting times and longer distances and also yeah, more costs. It's also barriers. Dr. Alatunde, are you already treating out-of-state patients, um, patients from states where abortion is now illegal? So I haven't treated any yet. I'm located in Philadelphia, which is um, on the eastern side of the state. I imagine that my colleagues in the western side of the state in central and western Pennsylvania are inundated um, because their surrounding states do have trigger bans in place. But I will say, and again, this might be just like anecdotal, like it feels like I'm getting a lot more referrals from patients in the center of the state. So from further away from outside of the tri-state area. So from people who live in Pennsylvania, but maybe are from coming from like three hours away. And I have a suspicion that because the clinics in those areas are being inundated with patients from out of state, can't accommodate the patients in their own communities um, being referred to all the way out in Philadelphia. And so, again, I don't really have any good like data to back that up, but that's what it's feeling like because I do have a my clinic is busier, certainly, um, and getting a lot more people from further away within the state. And have you talked with colleagues um, who are in these states where abortion is now illegal? Have you talked with them and, and, and found out what's going through their heads right now? I mean, it's kind of pandemonium is probably the best way to describe it, of like trying to set up systems to get people places to the care that they need. And 
I think it's also really challenging because even in those, some of those states, it's also very fluid because there are, you know, pushes for appeals and litigation to try to kind of, you know, push these trigger bans at bay. And so, you know, it can be very overwhelming having to navigate a clinic being open one day and then not the next day. So the last question I'd like to pose to you both, what misunderstanding do you think is perpetuated in the media um, in, in, in how abortion rights is covered? And what would you like to clear up? Um, and Dr. Bayer, let's start with you. Well, in Germany, in the media, you often um, see big bellies <laughs> as if uh, second or third trimester abortions were a very common thing. And as if women in the eighth month of pregnancy would regularly, spontaneously decide to have an abortion, which is not true. And also they um, make you think that you need criminalization to to not have these late abortions. But um, when we compare in, in Germany, we have um, abortions after the 20th week are 0.6% of all abortions. And it's the same in Canada where there's, there's no um, criminalization. So it doesn't make any difference in the end. And the other picture is also that uh, when talking about abortions in the seventh or eighth week, you regularly have baby pictures. So comparing a baby to an embryo in the eighth week. And also speaking of mothers, when when talking about a pregnant woman or person. So and this, of course, tries to evoke emotions and also tries to manipulate the the discussions. I think you know, kind of piggybacking off of what Dr. Byer said is that, yes, abortions, you know, later abortions aren't very common. That is most certainly true. But I also want to make sure that it's clear that everyone's abortion story matters and one abortion story isn't more justified than the other and that there are no good or bad abortions. I think in the news and the media, there's lots of, you know, promotion of like, I can't believe that they won't even provide this exception in the setting of rape or threat to a person's life or life-limiting fetal anomalies. But yes, those people's stories absolutely matter and they should absolutely have access to abortion when they need it. But it's their stories aren't the only ones that matter. It's the people that don't want to be forced to be pregnant at a time that's not right for them because they're just trying to take care of the people around them and their families and making a decision that feels right at that current moment. Those stories matter just as much and their abortion is no worse or better than the person that was raped, that the person who has a severe medical problem that makes pregnancy a threat to their life. Abortion doesn't come with any sort of caveat and they shouldn't have to prove that their abortion is worthy of having. Dr. Aisha Olatunde is an OBGYN in Philadelphia and a fellow with Physicians for Reproductive Health. And Dr. Alicia Bayer is an obstetrician and the co-founder of Doctors for Choice Germany. Thank you both for your time today. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you. It was a pleasure. Tearing Down Walls is a co-production of Sunshine Life and college radio station WNHU. 88.7 FM out of West Haven. It's been five months since Russia launched a full-scale invasion into Ukraine. 
Back in March, we talked with Olena Lennon, an adjunct professor at the University of New Haven. She teaches national security and political science at the university and is originally from Ukraine. Olena, welcome back to Tearing Down Walls. Thanks for having me back. I want to start with the trip you recently made back home to Ukraine. Can you share what that was like and what you were hearing from loved ones and, and people there? Yeah, you know, it was good to be back, but it was also quite, you know, heartbreaking and horrific to see all the destruction. You know, last time I was in Ukraine, it was pre-February 24th. You know, the farthest east I, I went was Kiev. I was in Lviv and Kiev, but it doesn't mean necessarily that, you know, it was safe um, because the entire country has been subjected to missile strikes. Um, I was also there right after a, an apartment was hit downtown Kiev, even though Ukrainian air defense systems have been pretty effective at intercepting Russian missiles. You know, it's not 100 percent guaranteed as missile strikes on residential areas continue. Um, And uh, I was actually surprised at how how many people have returned uh, to Ukraine. And that's one of these kind of bigger takeaway points for me was to to see um, uh, so many people going back. And as I was traveling to Ukraine from Poland, you know, a lot of my um, fellow passengers on, on trains and buses and, and various other modes of transportation uh, were actually returning to uh, Ukraine uh, permanently. You know, they had stayed out for several months, um, but made a decision to go back and and accept the risk of missile strikes or, you know, potential even um, escalation and, and Russian occupation and resume their lives because I think people just really miss it's a sense of normalcy, right? And then they 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 want to uh, they want to be home, and and again they calculate risks very differently now. So that is to say that as much as the Ukrainians have normalized these war conditions, they're also not losing hope to defeat Russia militarily, and they're they're willing to you know to fight to continue fighting, and and the 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 resilience and the the, the will that they have displayed has just been remarkable. Picking up on that idea of resilience, um, there was this video that you tweeted while you were in Ukraine of an ad for a wedding of your dreams. Um, Can you tell us more about where that was and what that symbolized for you? Um, It was in in Borodyanka. It was one of the small towns outside Kiev that was uh, shelled very heavily during the Kiev offensive in the opening stages of the war. And to me, that sort of contrast between a new life um, as a symbol of defiance, that despite all the death and destruction brought by uh, by the war and, and, and the Russian forces, the Ukrainians are defiant in, in the face of aggression and uh, persevering and continuing with their lives, uh, not just uh, making sort of war business as usual or trying to create a sense of normalcy, but also creating new life, right? Um, You know, celebrating love, celebrating life and uh, not changing much of their routine, their traditions, their rituals. You know, they're still having weddings and and they're they're still celebrating. So these um, uh, momentous events in their lives to the extent possible, right? Uh, they're still investing money and resources into, um, you know, making these occasions as memorable as possible, despite all the um, destruction and death. Now, what, what shocked me about uh, this particular ad in Borodyanka, it's just a dystopian post-battle debris field uh, that is it's just a graveyard for burned out buildings and vehicles stacked up on top of each other. There's still, again, people's belongings that you can see in, in piles of debris 
which stands as a as a symbol of not just Russia's strategic and tactical mistakes, uh, but also just the general approach to war and how in complete disregard for human life, um, not just Ukrainian life, but also the lives of Russian soldiers that became cannon fodder in, in, in this offensive. So again, so the, uh, um, just kind of to wrap it up, um, as horrific as it was, what I was mostly impressed by is how resilient the Ukrainian people are and how quickly they resumed their lives uh, in defiance of the Russian aggression. When we talked last um, at the end of March, you were breaking down the U.S.'s initial response. How do you see its priorities have shifted to help Ukraine in terms of the support it's given? Right. So, I mean, the the United States really had to uh, learn uh, quick. And I think that in many ways it it has been a race against time as the United States has been trying to uh, recalibrate a lot of their own policy and pursue two objectives at the same time. Uh, On the one hand, help Ukraine and uh, make sure that Ukraine has the capabilities to defend its sovereignty. But on the other hand, the United States still wants to prevent escalation. Uh, And they're still worried that long-range missiles that Ukraine has been asking for can uh, create escalatory dynamics and that the Ukrainians could potentially strike into the Russian territory and, and the war can spill over. I think what we have seen in the last several months, as far as U.S. foreign policy is concerned, is that decision makers tend to overstate the risks of action and underestimate the risk of inaction. And what we have seen is that non-decisions are also decisions with consequences, right? And I think that the Americans have learned the hard way to be more proactive in, in their response to crises and also realize that Russia's way of war is much more brutal and unpredictable as they had thought before you know, that we have, you know, underestimated uh, Russia's will to fight and, and also uh, the level of brutality that they're willing to inflict. And in, in some ways, I think that, that the U.S. is sort of catching up to to the realities that the Ukrainians feel as though they have lived with for a long time. Among more recent, of course, um, uh, developments is the fact that the United States after having increased its military aid, including the weapons and material and, and um, other types of assistance, they are now facing a, a real need to, an urgent need to increase their defense production uh, to make up for those um, uh, capabilities. So we are now, as taxpayers, we're also facing increases in defense budget, you know, uh, which will translate into um, more taxpayers' money going into uh, increased defense production because you know we need to now replenish those capabilities for our own defense capabilities. So uh, there's there's a lot of implications here for the U.S., um, but I think they're still facing many challenges in balancing um, support for Ukraine and preventing escalation. You mentioned the budget and taxpayer, and of course, right now what we're talking about a lot in Germany is this energy crisis we're expected to see this winter. In terms of the transatlantic relationship, the U.S. had long critiqued its transatlantic ally, Germany, for becoming too dependent on Russian gas and, you know, going forth with the construction on Nord Stream 2. And now the consequences are really being borne out. Do you think that Germany was too naive in this instance? Um, I don't think that Germany was too naive. I know in retrospect, it always seems, you know, we always feel as though we could have made better decisions, um, but because we have a different set of facts and we have access to 
more intelligence that we perhaps didn't have before. So, uh, you know, I, I think what it comes down to really is, is the fact that Germany's entire economic might and the fact that it has become an you know, economic powerhouse in Europe is almost entirely a function of um, access to cheap energy from Russia. Germany's economic machine it has been built on energy resources from Russia. So needless to say, they had perceived their dependence on Russian gas very differently, and, and not just gas, but fossil fuels in general. But you know, right now, more, I guess, critically, Germany's def- dependence on Russian gas in particular is of concern. But you know, Germany has calculated that risk of energy dependence differently based on their national priorities and, and, and based on uh, sort of their geopolitical status. Now, of course, you know, Germany faces the pressure to uh, recalibrate and to wean off Russian energy. And I think they're, it's, it's not hypothetical anymore, right? <laughs> so they're actually now um, doing their best um, to, to the extent possible, having, you know, facing domestic pressures and uh, real economic concerns. And the fact that the majority of the German population depend on gas to heat their homes uh, creates a lot of domestic pressure for Germany and obviously um, kind of uh, restricts their ability to to discontinue their reliance on Russian gas as quickly as possible. But having said that, I think that despite the fact that, that Germany is now considering reinstating even nuclear energy to compensate for gas shortages, they are moving in the right direction in recognizing the urgency of uh, winning off Russian gas, um, I just don't think they're going to get there as fast as we want them to. They could be doing more, but they're also restricted by the you know European Union policies. I think one of the challenges to expediting this process of discontinuing reliance on Russian energy is the fact that it has to be a, a unanimous decision by all European Union members. And, and this is kind of where things get stalled sometimes. Um, but keeping that unity um, a, as a priority is, is also important. So the last time we spoke, um, it was mid-semester for you at the University of New Haven. And you talked about the questions your students had about alliances and, and how they were reacting to the Russian invasion. How do you plan to incorporate what's happening into your lessons next semester? So I, I think what we have learned uh, since May, since I last uh, talked to my students, was that the cost of inaction sometimes is even higher than the cost of action. And, so, and the decisions that we have to consider don't only pertain to what we do, but also what's the cost of not doing something. And, uh, and this is exactly what happened, that I think that the lack of action on everybody's part really created even more opportunities for Russia to continue its punitive strikes um, on residential areas in Ukraine to where uh, war crimes that we saw in the beginning stages of the war have actually intensified and and Russia has since hit shopping malls in the middle of the day with thousands of people shopping inside um, those facilities, fully knowing that uh, these are crowded centers and they're likely to inflict greater pain on Ukraine by hitting so these crowded places. So th- these are no longer accidents, right? And and plausible deniability has been diminished with these you know obvious and blatant attacks on on civilians. Having said that, um, so what, what I would emphasize to my students is in the conversation that I think we need to have is how do we uh, calibrate our foreign policy here in the United States to have um, mechanisms in place to respond. Uh, to these war crimes and to aggression in kind and also in a timely manner. 
And this is a conversation about balancing values and interests um, in the design of U.S. foreign policy. You know, it is often one of the harder choices to make is how to how to reconcile values and interests, because you know, foreign policy fundamentally is about designing a course of action in pursuit of our national interests. But sometimes, you know, I think what the doing the right thing is an interest of its own. And uh, what the war in Ukraine has taught us is that keeping values in the forefront um, also serves our national interests. So that it, it's not impossible to to combine values based foreign policy and interests based foreign policy, and that by uh, doing the right thing in the moment and and um, responding to war crimes in other countries. Uh, will pay off in the long term, because what we have seen with Ukraine is that sort of lack of action uh, initially resulted in a higher cost, including for the United States, uh, for everybody involved to where we're now playing catch up and and it's raised against time. And, uh, you know, that is also, um, I, I think, is reflected in the way we're seeing a sort of massive realignment of powers and uh, geopolitical alliances and partnerships. That is also a new development. So uh, as far as sort of what new lessons or what new conversations have emerged as a result of, of this war, that I think will be critical uh, for the students of U.S. foreign policy, um, and that is one of them, is a reminder that the United States or any other power for that matter doesn't have permanent allies, it has permanent interests. Um, But we shouldn't lose sight of values. And coming to the last um, point here, do you see any diplomatic solution that could stall this war? Right. Um, You know, this is the most um, important really conversation that is on everybody's minds right now as we're looking for ways to end the suffering and to at least, you know, negotiate some sort of a ceasefire. What I will say, though, based on my visit in Ukraine and also the conversations that I've had with people, um, you know, over the last few weeks, is that there's just really no appetite in Ukraine for any negotiations with Russia. And the more the war goes on, the more it becomes clear to people in Ukraine that Russia's ambitions are to deny the Ukrainian state a uh, right to exist, you know, to deny Ukraine its nationhood and sovereignty, not just to control eastern Ukraine or to occupy eastern and southern parts of Ukraine. And if they allow Russia to uh, consolidate gains, territorial gains, political gains, then Russia will dig in and launch more attacks in the future. What I think is important to realize here is is not that Ukrainians don't want the war to end. Obviously, they, everybody knows that wars are decided um, at negotiating tables, not on the battlefields necessarily. Uh, but it's also important to keep in mind that you know wars are not decided by incremental tactical wins and and losses on the battlefield, but by economic endurance. This war already has the makings of the war of attrition. So it is about who can sustain pain longer. So um, to, again, to wrap it up, so right now the, um, uh, the, the solution as, as it is um, discussed in Ukraine is to increase Ukraine's ability to sustain pain longer, to provide uh, Ukraine with you know, more advanced capabilities, including long-range munitions and uh, artillery systems, that I know that the, the U.S. has reservations about right now, um, and uh, on the one hand, on the other hand, deny Russia an ability to endure 
these sort of economic and military losses and continue sanctions, keep the pressure on uh, to, uh, again, to deny Russia an ability to maintain its military might. So the combination of those two factors is believed to give Ukraine a chance to endure this pain longer, uh, to launch counteroffensives and reclaim lost territories. But the war is here to stay. And, um, you know, this, this will be a protracted war, unfortunately. Olena Lennon is an adjunct professor of political science and national security at the University of New Haven, which is home to our partner station, WNHU. Thanks again for your time. Thank you for having me. Due to the developing nature of the situation, a quick note that that interview was recorded on July 25th. Tearing Down Walls is a co-production of Sunshine Live and WNHU at the University of New Haven. I'm Sylvia Cunningham. This show was produced and edited by me and Monica Mueller-Kroll. Don't forget to hit subscribe to Tearing Down Walls wherever you get good podcasts. Thanks for joining us. See you next time.